0: Hebrews chapter nine. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: As a way of con- context, I'm going to remind us what we've been studying in this book. So far we have come to the 8th chapter in Hebrews and before this we've looked at a number of subjects, namely starting in chapter 1 with Christ being the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to his people throughout all the patriarchs, the prophets, the kings, and finally <clears throat> finally the prophets during exile. And we saw how this book is a reminder of our need for Christ, but it is really focused around a issue that's going on at the time for these Hebrew Christians. That is, they were being pestered with a doctrine called Judaism. And Judaism is not a separate religion from those who... Actually, it's, Judaism is a separate religion from those who are true faithful worshipers of Yahweh. We do not believe as Christians that there was Judaism and then after Christ there is Christianity. All of the people of God under both of the covenants, old and new, are one part together that is the church. When we confess in the Nicene Creed that we believe in one holy, apostolic, Catholic is the term, or universal. Catholic doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It means holistic church. We are acknowledging that Abraham was a Christian and that Abraham, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 11 in two weeks, Isaac, Jacob, they were Christians because they looked forward to the one sacrifice that was to be given, namely Christ himself, which is our subject today. And over and over again, the book is a warning to Christians who have heard the gospel and have begun to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and is a sufficient payment for their sins and that by faith in him and trust in his name, being united to him through baptism, they will persevere before the coming judgment. This book is written to a group of Christians that should they apostatize or revert back to what was formerly called a Yahweh, uh, uh, formerly called Judaism, which today is no longer represented by Judaism. T- today's Judaism isn't what the Judaism was at the past. Nevertheless, the point is, it was a rejection of Christ as the Messiah. It was, a, it was an apostasy from the faithful worship of Yahweh. That is, all who were faithfully worshiping Yahweh at the time of Christ received Christ as the Messiah. Those who did not receive Christ as the Messiah were not, at the time of Christ's coming, faithfully worshiping Yahweh, but they had perverted the intention of the law to something other than what God had intended, which is our main mode of showing forth Christ in this book. The book of Hebrews is a master or doctoral level interaction with the old covenant to show the glories of Christ. And being as that is the purpose of the book, we have spent as a church pretty much the last decade getting familiar with the Old Covenant in order that we could understand what the Hebrew writer is saying. The Hebrew writer is encouraging those who are young to still continue to drink milk, but he he says, I desire to bring you to maturity. I don't want to re-examine the foundation over and over again. I want to move you towards maturity, and maturity is seeing Christ in all the scriptures, and living in accordance with that revelation that you've been given, or that illumination that you've been given. And so we come to chapter 9 having heard warnings, having seen the sufficiency of Christ, and beginning to interact with the office of Christ as the mediator of the new covenant. And as the mediator of the new covenant, his glory is shown in this chapter in the most magnificent way, And I'm very excited. It's truly an honor to be able to even discuss these things with you. I think you're going to see something in chapter 9 that will really revolutionize the way that you perceive the world. It's my opinion, and theologians throughout the centuries have, have brought up this idea that what Christ does on the cross is a complete sufficient atonement for sins, but it's more than that. It has cosmic, universal, metaphysical implications. And so especially you college students, if you ever get to a metaphysics class or a logic class or a worldview class, these things are not outside of the Christian faith. These are a part, the way you view God's world is intimately related to how much you can see of Christ, his person, and his work. And so I want to encourage you that these Some some of these will be big words for you, but I would encourage you to give yourself towards deep attention. And I'm always available for questions after the service or throughout the week if you have a question. So we're going to look at the timing of the covenants. The Hebrew writer actually uses a parable of the temple's physical layout, its furniture and its walls, to speak of it in a paradigm or a a a metaphorical way excuse me, metaphorical way, about the old covenant itself and it being set aside. That's how we closed chapter 8, that, that, that what, was, what was growing old is ready to vanish away, which we saw fulfilled in 70 AD during the destruction of Jerusalem and the ending of the temple system. That's what the Hebrew writer is prophesying. He says that the old system has no more use because that which it shadowed forth pointed to, to in Christ has been fulfilled by Christ, and therefore there's no longer any need for the the, the uh, priesthood of Levi to continue offering up those sacrifices. We're going to look at Christ's atonement, as we saw last week a little bit, but here in great detail, Christ's atonement, his work on the cross, as inaugurating the new covenant. If you remember back to the, the meal right before the crucifixion, he says this is the blood of the new covenant. He is intentionally, as you heard in the reading, invoking in his disciples a memory of Moses applying the blood to each one of them, and he gives the cup to each one of them. He says, divide this or spread it amongst yourselves. And so this cup is our share and it was inaugurated by Christ in the shedding of his blood. I want to look at the efficacy or the effectiveness, if you will, of Christ's blood. What does it accomplish? Why was it necessary? Looking at it in the context of covenants, the absolute necessity, the the logical, integral nature of blood being a, necess- a necessary element of atonement, and then finally his efficacy in ending sin. Not only does Christ accomplish an atonement on the cross and put us at, at right fellowship with God, those who have faith in him, but he also unleashes an effect through his blood that is the putting away and dealing with your sin. This is really the Hebrew writer's intention in this chapter. He's trying to get across the fact that because Christ was offered once for all, the sin issue at work in those who are coming to follow Christ has been satisfied. And that satisfaction, known as the finished work of Christ, is complete, full, and final. And therefore, it has implications for you how you examine yourself in the light of this book? Are you clinging to Christ? Are you trampling Christ's blood under your foot, etc.? And so seeing that Christ's atonement was sufficient, it, it uh, compels us all the more to take heed of what we've heard and what we're learning and reading. So at the beginning, I want to examine what is the point of the law? Why was the law given? The law was given that through the faithful use of it, and the execution of the priesthood and the sacrifices in accordance with the law, that it would be a tutor or a trainer for not only the priests themselves, but also all of Israel, that they would see their need for a true atonement. We looked at this last week how year by year the sons of Levi arise and they make an atonement, but the next year it's, it has to happen again. So the question is, did it cover the year? Yes, it covered the year, but it was a putting off of guilt. It was not a satisfaction of guilt. Each Levite is born into the world having a task to do, and each Levite dies not having completed the task. And so we see our need for an eternal priest. God's establishing of the law was to command that they use symbols, that is, pictures, images, furniture, and signs, the, act, the very actions, the very uh, sacrifices themselves, were to be a reminder of their need to stay faithful to him. It was a reminder of what God had done in the past, and it was a reminder that in trusting in the God who's acted in the past, he will act in the present, and he will act in the future. Every item in the tabernacle or temple, every single item, every piece of furniture, every, even the physical layout itself, had something to teach the priests about their need for Yahweh. For example, the life of the priest and and the people, both the priest and the people themselves, are shadowed forth, imaged forth, sustained by that which is in the temple. Consider, for example, the lampstand. This room is covered with walls. It doesn't have windows, and it also is a tent that has a roof. Without the lampstand, the priest cannot enter into the the, the holy place. Without the table, without the bread, which is symbol, symbolic of the sustenance from Yahweh's hand, the priest cannot eat, so he can't have fellowship with God, and he also would starve. In a very same way, what we see at the beginning of this chapter, unless God sent manna during the Exodus, the people would have starved. We we all remember the, the manna, but we all sometimes forget he also sent quail. It was like, you know, I use the... Uh, I use the image of cheeseburgers raining from heaven. You know, it, it's like if, if you've ever been someone who's hunted. Hunting is difficult, and the quail are just plopping out of the sky at your door. T- you know, the tent of your the door of your tent. It's it's an amazing provision. So God commands that the manna be put in the tabernacle so that the priest would regularly see it as a reminder during the rebellion of the priesthood with. Uh, in numbers fifteen through seventeen, we see that God chooses Aaron by commanding all of the staff uh, all of the tribes to present a staff, a wooden rod that was dead a a rod that was used for carrying or or walking. It was a symbol of authority and power. This was the same staff that Aaron used to swallow up the serpents of the magicians in Egypt, and he takes that staff back up just as he put it down, and we saw. How it was, uh, in times past we saw that that was actually, it itself was a symbol of Christ laying down his life and taking it back up. It was a symbol of death and resurrection. And we, here we see this wooden staff that's placed in the, in the testimony. The very next day it has come out and it is budded. So not only did God cause that dead piece of wood to come back alive, he also caused the hormones that are necessary for the budding process to be released into that once dead staff to cause it to come to life. This itself is death and resurrection. Over and over again, the priests, as they minister before God, are seeing things that remind them of God's action in the past. The very tablets, that is what we consider, if you've ever seen the old movie, The Ten Commandments, with the big stones. We don't know that they had arched tops. That's beside the point. Uh, Those were destroyed by God, by Moses, for when he came down off of the mountain, the people had already broken the covenant before they even got it. We saw how we saw last week how Aaron's priesthood was idolatrous from the beginning, that he made those calves. You remember the golden calves, surely. And so what what this is, is this is a second copy of the commandments that God himself wrote on his finger. What does this say? It says that God is willing to overlook the sins of his people. Not in a permanent way, not in a way that trivializes them, but he is a God of mercy and grace. And in fact, His name is proclaimed in that same chapter as the God who is loving, kind, merciful, gracious, showing mercy to thousands of generations. And so God is at work in reminding the priests of his his actions. So through their faithful execution, they would have been reminded of specific and historic times, individual moments in the history of the people where God had acted to save his people. The writer says that this old covenant is actually corresponding to the outer court. That is, God worked with his people through the covenant to prepare them for Christ. Each thing that he did in the Old Testament was in the Old Testament scriptures was done in order to show the nation their need for the Messiah. And so the, the Hebrew writer actually says that this is an action of the Holy Spirit he says that Christ has now come at the end of the ages i just want to change your eschatology what you think of the end times the hebrew writer said that the time of Christ is the end of the ages so we already are living in the last days as peter said at the day at his sermon of pentecost in these last days he has poured out his spirit and so what what the, the writer is saying is the first section that is the Old Covenant, which he ties to be the outer court, is ready to pass away because Christ has now proceeded through the outer court and has entered into the holy places. I want you to imagine outer court, inner court, and view it as a timeline. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. He's saying that the Old Covenant corresponds to the outer court, and once the the true work, the atonement, is done in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the outer court is ready to vanish and pass away. He, he actually says, we saw this in chapter 8. In in chapter 8 verse 1 he says, now the point in what we're saying is this. Don't you love those places in the Bible? It's like I, I was off base but now I'm coming back to center. What the Hebrew writer does is he says that the Holy Spirit was writing a narrative. He was telling a story and he was telling a story in order for one thing. He says, by these things, by everything he just referenced in the prior verses, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places was not yet opened. Even though the Levites were going into the holy place year after year, it was not the true holy place. It was not sufficient. He says in verse 9, this is symbolic for the present age. That's not a, a novel idea that I get. This is what the Hebrew writer is saying, the person who wrote this letter. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body, imposed until the time for Reformation. Now the time for Reformation, ye Protestants, was not in the 1600s. (laughs) The time of Reformation was the reforming of the world in the ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. What the Hebrew writer is saying is that Christ's death and resurrection is world-changing, You and I do not live in a world that is subject to death forever. You and I live in a world in which dead people come back to life. In programming, we always talk about it as being zero to one, being infinitely hard, and one to two is easy. When you make the first one, it takes a lot of time, but you can copy it instantly. I think that that's God's paradigm, that we live in a world in which dead people, by the victory that Christ himself purchased for not only himself, but also his people, that dead people have the right to come back to life. Hallelujah. World changing. So what he's saying is that this is the ending of the ages, past tense, and we are now in a new realm, a new time period in which the new covenant has been unleashed. Now this is not a breaking with the nature of God's action in the past, but merely the administration of the covenants as we've seen. Christ's arrival is in the incarnation considered to be John the Evangelist, to be a tabernacling This is very important to see. This is pretty much my main point. Uh, We're getting here to to Christ's action. That Christ, when he took on flesh, it's said of him by John the Evangelist in in the Gospel of John in the first chapter, that Christ took on flesh, the word became flesh, and tabernacled among us. That means he lived in a tent, and that tent was not made by hands, as the Hebrew writer is talking about. Just as the tabernacle was in the center of the tribes, if you remember back to the Old Covenant, the, there's three tribes to the north, three tribes to the east, three tribes to the south, and three tr- tribes to the west, sim- symbolizing that the true tabernacling would take place by Christ and he would dwell among us for all the people to see. This is what we celebrate when we come to the time of Epiphany, that Christ did not do these things in secret, but disclosed himself to the people. And so Christ became flesh and tabernacled in order to show his glory, but that was not the only point. He he images forth God's glory to the people, but he also does something with that body, which is impossible for you or I to do because of his sinless perfection and also the mission and commission that he's been given by God. So Christ did, absolutely did, desire to show his glory forth to the people by ministering among them, and this is often what we talk about as Christ's work, or works, or ministry, but not final work, and this is not the revelation, the, the revelation that he had for them, they did not understand. In John 2, he says, tear down this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. He's speaking publicly to the people, trying to give them an understanding that his body is the real temple, as we're going to see and that it is the outer court through which he enters into the heavenly tabernacle, which is a beautiful and glorious mystery, which we'll get to in about five minutes. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent that is not made with hands, that is not part of this creation. We see that Christ takes on humanity, and yet what's said of his body is a contrast to the tabernacle. If you remember back to the Old Covenant, there was a, a word given about the stones used for the temple. And it was commanded that none of the stones that were used for the temple were able to have a human's tools applied to the temple. Why is this? Because God wished to image forth to the people of Israel that no contribution of sinful man can ever be made to add to the edifice of the place of and sufficiency of the atonement. That is, Christ is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. He is the stone and he is the temple itself. And this is done through his body, not through a tent, not through a place of rocks and stones piled on each other. It says that through this temple, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption what i'm trying to get to is this that the hebrew writer is saying that christ did not enter like one of the levites into a physical place but that through the death and offering up of his own body he performed a spiritual journey into the heavenlies by the holy spirit of god through the suffering of his own body on the cross Christ takes on flesh for this reason, not merely to present the glory of God to the people, but also to open or to offer it up and that through that body, we would have access into that heavenly tabernacle as well. Just as the high priest enters the most holy way or most holy place by the way of the holy place, Christ's physical body was an avenue by the Holy Spirit of God for him to enter into the heavenly sanctuary. And that right there, brothers and sisters, is a divine and glorious mystery, as the Hebrew writer is trying to say. And the implications of this are absolutely staggering. The first thing is that we do not live in a world that is divided up into physical and into spiritual that is, I want you to close your eyes and imagine this for just a second. I want you to see a Levite. You don't have to know what it looks like. But he's just a person with a bunch of cool clothing. And he's walking, he's walking into the holy place, which has a, a tent and a veil. And he passes through that veil. He pushes it aside for rite of atonement one time a year and enters into the holy place, the holy of holies. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is that Christ, in his suffering, in taking on the weight of guilt of sin and the the wrath of God against sin, journeys into the heavenly tabernacle through his body. And so we do not live in a world where physical things and spiritual things are divorced. We live in a world in which Christ, what he does on the cross, on the earth, outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, by the Spirit of God is intimately connected to an eternal place, that is, the heavenly sanctuary. To not offer up the blood of animals that come from the earth, but his own blood. And that was not done just in the physical, it was also done in the spiritual. Why is this so important? Is because you and I were not there 2,000 years ago to be sprinkled with blood. You and I were not there, we did not behold Christ in the crucifixion, nor did we behold Christ in the resurrection, but by the spirit of God, because of what the Hebrew writer is saying, the spirit can take that same blood and have it apply to us. Second thing is that his blood was spilt on earth and it also accomplishes something in the heavens. And because it accomplishes something in the heavens, the Hebrew writer says, our faith is secure and sure. Christ's atonement was the reconciliation between heaven and earth. You see this actually throughout the structure of all of the scriptures. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We see a divorce or a divide between the two. As Paul is arguing in 1 Corinthians that at the, res, at the resurrection at the end of the age, which comes after Christ, that Christ will be himself all in all. He will be the mediator unveiled between heaven and earth. Everything will be subjected to him. Through Christ's death, that which was prophesied by Jacob's ladder has not only been established, but also revealed. You you and I can have fellowship with God because of what Christ did. Truly, the new covenant is absolutely established in Christ's blood. As he said, we alluded to earlier, as he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And this is an, an inauguration or an enacting or a beginning or an establishment of the new covenant in time, in space, bringing an eternal reality to bear at a moment in which the God-man dies in the stead of his people. I want to look at the efficacy of Christ's blood, the effectiveness of it. This sure and secure source of redemption, namely Christ's blood, is described as being sprinkled upon those who are presented. This was what I was alluding to. You and I were not there 2,000 years ago. The blood of Christ could not actually, in the physical, be applied to us. But we understand that this is not just a physical world separated from a spiritual world. It is a physical and spiritual world which God oversees and manages. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, what was done in the Old Covenant was done so that they could come temporarily, ceremonially, before God's presence in the most holy place. He says, if that was effective for a time in, in order, in God's view, then how much more will the blood of Christ Who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify us. What he's saying is that blood of bulls and goats, it never actually was effective, but only for a time as God saw fit, it was effective in a temporary fashion for the priest to make the the atonement year by year. And he says, if that was effective in God's esteem, then how much more will he acknowledge the blood of his own son? And how much more will it be applied to those who were there present, spiritually speaking? I want you to look at this closely, that neither the means, that is how they got there, nor the occasion, their reason for being there, neither the means nor the occasion for the sanctification before the great high priest are described as belonging to the people. They are not presented before Jesus in the heavenly uh, heavenly tabernacle, on the basis of their performance, nor their merit, nor their right to be there. They are not, it's, none of that is spoken of in this chapter. None of it is even viewed, even remotely. They do not come before Christ on their own merit, but are presented before him by the Father's sovereign election and choice. His merciful disposition caused them to be present. I want you to think of it like this. The Hebrew writer is drawing parallels not contrast, but comparisons to the old covenant. Who were, who were the people of Israel and why were they there? The people of Israel were there when Moses was sprinkling the blood on them of the covenant because of God's election of choosing Israel out of Egypt. And he even says, I did not choose you because you were a mighty nation or had any glory, but actually I chose you because I set my love upon you. And so what the Hebrew writer is training us to do is make comparisons. If in the old covenant it wasn't on the basis of their performance, then no longer n- neither would it be in the new covenant, which is greater and better promises. Those who are present, present before Christ are not there on the basis of their own purpose, nor of their own desire, nor of their own right to be there. The blood which is applied to them is dispensed upon them without condition of prior performance. It has nothing to do with what the Israelites were doing in Egypt. God did not reward them based on how well they were making bricks without straw, which is all the sinner can do in hoping to reform himself before a holy God. Not only, therefore, are you redeemed from sin to holiness, that is, you have iniquity and transgression and dysfunction and depression and mire and weight and muck and terribleness, you're, you're in a horrible state. Not only are you transferred to a redeemed and glorious and clean and fresh state, you also are sanctified and set apart for a purpose. Christ does not merely wipe the slate clean. He wipes the slate clean and then writes wonderful things on the, tab, uh, the tablet of your heart. Verse 15, therefore Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. How do you know that you will persevere in the faith? The reason you know is that Christ stands. The reason that you have confidence before God is that Christ is the mediator of the covenant. So how is this helpful to you Christians? The reason it is helpful to you is that in the moments of your weakness, and sin, and confusion, and failures, real moral failures, sins which you have committed, which you knew not to do, and yet you did anyway. Those things are able to be sanctified by the blood of Christ because he has made an atonement once for all, and he himself, his session before the Father, his seated residence before the Father is a concrete mediation. It is a sure cause for your perseverance. He says that this is true because a death has occurred. A death has occurred that has redeemed them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the Hebrew writer unpacks the effectiveness of Christ's blood in establishing the new covenant, and he does this by using language in comparison to the old covenant, and he demonstrates the necessity of blood in all covenants. He says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now, what the Hebrew writer is doing is he's, he's using a metaphor. He is talking not about uh, like your volitional will, that is, your purpose. He's talking about a legal will, that is, the recording of your will and testament, last will and testament, usually done with a lawyer or put in a secure place in a bank or with a trust. That cannot be executed unless there is the death of the one who, is, uh, who, who that will pertains to, Right? You can't just take someone's will. I found it. Now I have your house and your money and your things. They have to die. It's important that they establish that there was a death. And this is not something that is a human invention. The Hebrew writer is arguing from this in a favorable way, not a disfavorable way. He's saying this is evidence of the need for a death to be confirmed. He says, verse 17, for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. That's very simple. We all can understand this. And then he argues from this. He says that the fact of the inauguration of the covenant requires a death. And the proof of that death is the shedding of blood. Not just a blood oath or a prick of blood, but lots and lots of blood. This is why Christianity has to be understood as a bloody religion. It is not a bloodless religion. In the writer's example of the first covenant requiring blood, we see a wonderful and glorious mystery. This is my second main point, is that there is a connection between the temple and the people. And if there is no connection between the temple and the people, then Christ's offering that he made in the heavenly sanctuary only applies to those who were present. It only applies to those who the temple was connected to. But as it is in God's understanding of these things, in the way that God sees truth, which is the truth, he considers the people to be intimately connected to the temple. It is a stand-in for them. And we're going to see that through a comparison back to Moses. This is why, as a side point here, I'm encouraging you to use your life to know the scriptures. I want you to be people who, when you hold up your Bible and you turn page by page through weird places like Isaiah 62 or Habakkuk 1, you know what it means. And you can know what it means. By the grace of God, he's given wisdom to the church through his spirit, and these things are yours. This is your inheritance, is examining the glory of Christ and seeing it on every page of the scripture, and that will edify and strengthen your walk with God. And that is really the only true avenue to real spirituality and love for God and neighbor is to be informed by his word. And sidebar. Verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, those things which were, uh, which were necessary for cleansing. Those things were applied And he sprinkled both the book itself and the people. Notice the connection, book, people, tabernacle. Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you, verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. The reason you can be atoned for in the holy place is that the very same blood has touched you and it's touched the temple. And that is a spiritual reality which God considers necessary. The people have committed sins, therefore the tabernacle must be cleansed as it represents the people before God. See, many people think that God has established the Levitical system in order to be appeased, in order that he might be satisfied in his vengeance against sin and his wrath. But really, the tabernacle is not for God. The tabernacle is for the people. You see, this is what God is trying to say to David. You supposed to be making me a house, but I've not commanded a house to be made. Nevertheless, I will make you a house, and then your son will make me a house. The point being that the son of David, namely Jesus Christ, is also shadowed forth by Solomon, as we've seen. That would take us too far afield to unpack, but the point is that the son of God is the one who establishes the temple. The blood connects the people to the tabernacle. And interestingly, we see this in the language of the passage itself. Now, I want to make clear that Hebrews 9 was not divided up by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. That is, he didn't, you know, as he was writing, he says, oh, well, verse one is done. Okay, this is verse two. Those verses came 1,000 years after, uh, 800 years after. The point is that in this section of discourse, the, the word blood occurs 12 times. It occurs one time for each of the tribes of the the Israelites. I think that's significant in the way that God, through his spirit, is inspiring the, the letter to be written. Because what it's saying is that the blood is connected to the people, and it does that through metaphor, but it also does it through literature. It does it through the the form of the chapter itself. Christianity is a bloody religion because it deals with reality. This is why you can instantly and for all time turn off the Oprah channel or New Age spirituality or positive thinking or Buddhism or any other of the religions which do not have anything to do with blood. Once you get rid of those, you can also get rid of the ones that aren't Christianity that do talk about blood. But the point is this, that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And that isn't some mystery in the universe that exists without God's consideration. That's what God thinks of the gross and heinous nature of iniquity and sin and transgression. It is his prescribed means to bring his created people back to fellowship with him. And that is not arbitrary, that is not barbaric, It is only the moderns who think that that is barbaric because they are really truly pagans, because they don't have any desire to do away with sin, but Christ totally did away with sin for his people. He says in verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. If you go back and read Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, you see blood everywhere. It's it's a disaster. The reason is this, is that iniquity is everywhere. And so not only the people, but also the book itself, the book of the covenant and the temple are all connected by the same blood. And in fact, that blood is the thing that connects them. Therefore, because Christ's blood was offered in the heavenly temple, we, that is his people, have confidence that it can sanctify us as well. And that faith is the core of our religion. That Christ's blood is truly effective for me. That I can be sure that I have been cleansed, not merely by the washing externally, which we know to be baptism, but the washing of the heart, having our hearts sprinkled. This is why I think it's important to understand that baptism isn't just dunking. Baptism is also the sprinkling that Moses did with the the branch and hyssop and the wool. Nevertheless, because the people are represented by the temple, the blood of Christ must be applied to the temple and the people as well, Therefore, the writer argues that Christ enters the temple in order to sanctify the people. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified. Without understanding that the people are represented by the temple, this verse makes no sense. I want you to to try to imagine for a second that this verse stands without that understanding. That is, there's a place in heaven that needs to be atoned for and sanctified. That does not make any sense. The things in heaven are sinless, right? The things before the throne of God are the angels, fire, a sea of glass, terrifying things, should we behold them with our eyes. The things which the prophets have told us about. If you go back to Ezekiel 1 or Jeremiah, 6, or sorry, Isaiah 6 or Revelation 1, Revelation 4 and 5, it's a chaotic scene of holiness, thunder, lightning, trembling, earthquakes, fire, and so what, what business does the Hebrew writer saying that something in the heavens has need for sanctification and cleansing? The reason is, the only way it makes sense is if you and I are imaged forth and represented by the temple. We see that Christ's atonement was not done in relation to satisfy judgment against abstract sin. The temple, which was cleansed, points to people, the people of God. His atonement is accomplished by the putting of way of the actual transgressions of his people, each of which incur, incur guilt. The whole thrust of the New Testament is that if there were another way to sanctify those who had committed sins, then the blood of Christ was shed needlessly. And you can work th- that backwards. If Christ's blood does not actually deal with the sins of actual people, but just potential people, then again it was shed needlessly. Christ's work is, that is the effectiveness of his work, corresponds to his person. Christ is perfect. Christ is without blemish. Christ is maximally effective and therefore his atonement is just like he is. It's effective. It's perfect. There are no mistakes in it. There are no flaws. His work is perfect such that to all to whom it applies have the utmost and sure confidence of their innocence before God. This is what allows you to go to sleep at night. This is the faith, the confidence that you can have standing before the throne of God at the end of time. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, so he just made a negative example saying he didn't go into the earthly temple. He says, "Nor was it offered, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters each year." Verse 26, "For when he would have to for then he would have to suffer repeatedly, since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And really this speaks not only to the effectiveness of who the atonement applies to, but it speaks to how you think about your ongoing fight and war against sin. I hear so often people come to me for advice and they say, I'm struggling with this. And I say, well, don't struggle, kill it. You're not supposed to struggle with your sin. Now, I'm not saying that you will never sin again. What I'm saying is that what the very next chapter says in verse 10 is if you go on sinning willfully, you have no expectation other than a harsh judgment. We're going to see that next week. The reason why the Hebrew writer says that is that Christ not only put away the former sins, he put away the condition Those who he washes. He sanctifies them to cleanliness and then commissions them to be a part of God's mission on the earth. Finally, the writer argues of the obvious nature of this truth the revelation of Christ's effectiveness connecting it to the sure knowledge of a final judgment. In verse 27, he says, and just, he's reasoning from this. He's saying, and just as it is appointed for a man to die, and after that comes the judgment, so also Christ, having having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. You see, what he's saying is those who have put away sin already because they've put away sin, having had Christ's work apply to them, they are merely redeemed. You should not consider your ongoing war against sin to be a simple struggle. You should not simply think that you need to try harder or have it be more effective. You need to begin to have your mind renewed to focus on your sin rightly, not to consider it as still needing to go on. So many Christians excuse themselves And I think they do so to a dangerous degree by saying, well, this is not a sin that I can overcome. Or this sin is just simply outside my ability. Or this sin is covered by Christ, but it doesn't need to stop. What has Christ's blood done? It has put away sin. And So the question is this. As Christ has appeared to put away sin, will we, we should, we ought to, forsake those things which entangle us? Destroy them. Make war with them. The blood of Christ is worthy of honor and of right treatment. And finally with that, wait for him with steadfast confidence. This is what it says at the end of this chapter. Will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. How are you waiting for Christ? Are you waiting for Christ with eager anticipation? Or are you waiting with Christ hoping that when he appears, he'll merely look over any remaining sin that you permit. Now again I'm not talking about the moment by moment weakness of character or person uh or humanity that is there are I'm not saying you are will be perfect. I'm saying that if you've made peace with sin then you do not understand the point of the atonement. It was to kill all of it. That's really my exhortation. Father we thank you for Jesus Christ and his worthiness. We pray that we would see the infinite glorious worth of his blood that it would be applied to our hearts by the holy spirit of god that you would remake us and you would reform us just as in christ you have brought about the new covenant that we would be true members of that covenant that we would not only have knowledge of these things in our heart in our head but that they would be realities in our heart as well we pray god that you would give us a zeal for your word that we would become people who love your word and know your word And by your spirit through his illumination of your scriptures that we would come to true knowledge. That knowledge would be effectual for us. We pray God that you would give to us a right understanding of how we ought to make war with sin. And that we would do it all in the light of what you have done through your son Jesus. We ask for these things for his glory and honor. Amen.